Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Hey, thanks for coming back. In this episode, I will sit down with Richard Wilson. He is the founder of Wilson Structural out of Sarasota, Florida. And this is actually the first private residence or the first single family home that we have had on Unstruct. But I think you will find very quickly that this is not like your typical residential home structure. So anyone that I'm connected with on social media, you've probably seen me post about this. I have kind of been obsessed with this project since it started construction. So they've done a really great job of posting videos during construction and also showing pictures uh, throughout the construction phase. So, and actually one of my good friends with Trinity Construction is uh, working on the project. So that's been super fun to hear all about it from them as well. So this project is, like I said, a single family home located right on the Gulf of Mexico. So it's one John Ringling, which is the address. So it's, yeah, beachfront right there. It's, it's, rather large. So it looks like a land yacht kind of picks up the whole beach vibe, I guess. So it's made out of concrete. Nothing is orthogonal. Imagine that nothing orthogonal with the formwork for this. So all very custom formwork swooping pieces that are used from a structural perspective as well. So I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation with Richard as he kind of dives into no pun intended, right on the beach. Uh, but anyway, as he dives into uh, the structural design and kind of the thought process that is making this very unique structure stand. So at this point, I think the structural piece is complete and they are working on finishes. So enjoy this conversation with Richard. Richard. 
Today, we have Richard Wilson with Wilson Structural Consultants out of Sarasota, Florida, talking about the one John Ringling building or house structure. It's 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 its own animal, I guess. So anyway, Richard, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, it's great to be here with you, Carrie. I'll just start a little bit. So the building is a residential structure, beachfront, prime real estate, right on the beach. In is it, what's the key that it's on, Longboat? It is on, uh, no, it's not on Longboat, it's on Lido Key. On Lido Key, okay. So I guess maybe if you want to just describe it in a little more detail as far as what what the structure is and when you were enlisted to kind of, or how it was brought to your attention. Well, the structure has uh, been kind of kicking around for quite some time. Uh, there was a, a gentleman uh, by the name of Jan Stanberry that kind of originally conceived of the idea. And he, he was a, just a designer. When I say just a designer, he was a designer, not a licensed architect. And he had given the plans to another engineer and they'd gone through a design process that I guess the owner and the, the designer felt didn't work. And so they came to us and we kind of started from scratch. And the original project, I think, probably started 10 years ago, if not more. And Jan Stanberry kind of came in and out of her business a number of times. You'd think it was going and then it wasn't going. And eventually, uh, the owner decided to go with an architect, and another architect took up the mantle there. He actually put some thought into things like egress and, and so on and so forth, but he didn't last either. And so another architect came on board, <laughs> and we were the only constant from the beginning to the end of that. And that architect actually got down uh, to the nuts and bolts of the whole thing. and. Uh, we ended up putting the thing together. So it's a three-story house. It's two living levels plus a rooftop terrace over parking. Gotcha. And there's an elevated pool on the, the what would be the second elevated level. And uh, so the, the uh, area below the pool became the drive-through. And there was a, <laughs> actually, there was a pool equipment room underneath the end of the pool that we actually made into a shear wall and a uh, support for that end of the building. So, Gotcha. And what's the square footage like for each one of those, you know, the two stories for each plate? What's the square footage? Because it looks like a monster. It's pretty big. I think it's probably the AC square footage and the square footage are, are vastly different. I think the AC square footage is probably only 2,500 per floor or something like that. Okay. And that's just an estimate on my part. But there's a, at least that much uh, room out on the outside decks, uh, including the roof area. Sure. And, and would you say, I mean, to me, when I look at it, it looks like it looks, I mean, it looks like a boat. It looks like a yacht that was built on the beach. Is that, uh, was that the intent or? That was the original designer's concept. Okay. He came up with the concept of this ship landing on the beach and uh, just kind of sitting there. And uh, all the sweeping arches of the, the exterior going in two different directions, that was all part of 
his original concept. And uh, fortunately, the final design architect was able to use that idea and move forward with it. Sure. No, it looks so cool. So what did you think when you first saw this original design concept? Um, I smiled. I thought, <laughs> hmm, this will be <laughs> this will be an interesting challenge. Look complicated. I think originally they had uh, conceived of the arch elements to be precast. Okay. And hauled to the site and erected. And there was some thought that they were somehow going to make a shoe, shoe walls out of these, these side arches. Well, they came kind of came towards a point, just like the prow of the boat. So when we looked at it, we knew we were going to have to model it in the three recent 3D. Mm-hmm. The precasters kind of threw up their hands and said, we can't do this. Uh, it had three different thicknesses of concrete, we went from 8 to 12 to 20. Okay. Uh, and that's what gives the appearance, a lot of the appearance. And plus it was supposed to be integrated with the floor slabs. And the precasters felt that it was going to be, number one, too difficult to precast. It was supposed to be a shear wall originally, and the connections uh, were more than difficult because they were using ledges and some other things. They also didn't think they could haul it and actually erect it, despite the fact that it provides a good lateral load resistance. It is quite delicate, you know, with all these eight-inch pieces. And with our concept, our design concept, we wanted to integrate the floors with these arches. So they were kind of poured into the arches. Okay. So so the arches are, if if I'm understanding or remembering it correctly, it's almost like an upside-down U and then a U that kind of intersect. One goes up and one goes down on the sides of the structure. Is that right? It's actually two upside-down U's. Okay. And two right side up views that kind of offset from each other. Okay. And that is actually the gravity and lateral support of the house? That is a significant part of the gravity and lateral. Okay. Uh, we, we have a couple extra shear walls. But yeah, that's a significant portion. Because the thing, they came in at an angle, you drew an orthogonal axis uh, in, through the building, these shear walls come to, towards a point. They acted in both directions. Okay. So, but you only had to do uh, what figure in each orthogonal direction, but they're used for both of them. Is that right? Yes. Or each yeah. orthogonal direction at a time. Yeah. Sounds complicated. <laughs> well, thank heavens for uh, programs like ETABS and Reese the 3D. So. Did you use ETABS for the lateral design of it then? Uh, we did use ETABS for some of it. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So the gravity system of this structure, this house, is it mostly concrete then? Yes, concrete columns uh, for the most part. And these exterior arch elements. Uh, we did have some steel columns uh, on the upper levels, I think. Okay. Actually, we, we transitioned from uh, concrete slab at the first elevated to uh, bar joists and some concrete uh, deck on the second element to okay. bar joists on the, the upper level. So. Okay, so there's a decent amount of steel then to the gravity system. Yes. Okay, yeah. so that lightens it up a little bit, huh? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so what about the foundations? Because you are, I mean, th- this structure is right on the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, it's feet from <laughs> the Gulf of Mexico. So uh, what did you have to do for the foundations for this? 
Well, the foundations were auger cast piles. Okay. So, I mean, we had to put piling foundations in just because it was, in, I can't remember if it was a V or an A zone, but there uh, it was in a FEMA flood zone. And um, I'm guessing it was a B. Uh, yeah, we used uh, piling. I think originally they were intended on bringing some of the piling up to the first elevated level, and there were all kinds of discussions about how they might be able to do that. And we decided just for pure appearance sake, if for no other reason, that it would be much better to put pile caps in the ground and go up from there. Sure. So how far down do the auger cast piles go? Um, yeah, the, I think we used 14-inch uh, auger cast piles, and they went down 33 feet. Okay. So there's a significant amount of structure that is below grade, too, that, that you wouldn't see. Percent. Top of pile caps actually has to be had to be down at close to sea level. Okay. Um, so I mean that there's a whole bunch of excavation involved with that process. Sure. Okay. So you mentioned a little bit too about just kind of the floodplain and which which level of care you needed to take with that. Um, what were some of the special things that you had to do because of that? Well, I mean typically. Um, one of the requirements is having to put the top pile cap down so that the eroded profile of the, the soil doesn't place load, an unusual load on the structural elements. Mm -hmm. okay. The other thing is that we anything that's below the breaking waves um, has got to be designed for hydrodynamic wave forces. So it's hard to use masonry as an example. Um, on the lower level, just because uh, typically those loads run, you know, 250 to 300 pounds per square foot. Okay. And let's stop for just a second. So you said 250 to 300 pounds per square foot as a frame of reference for someone that maybe isn't used to loading. Wind load, like around, I'm in Iowa. So our wind load is typically about 20 pounds per square foot. So that's 10 to 15 times what wind load would be on yes. a building is what you had to design for. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Wow. I mean, so did you have to move up that first floor or uh, was the use of the lower level altered because of the floodplain elevation and because of seawall requirements? Yeah. The first floor was also has got to be up at an elevation that's consistent with the FEMA regulations. And how do you know how much the water elevation changes from from high tide to low tide in that area? Like, was that a concern for you guys? No, tidal fluctuation is not significant here on the west coast of Florida. Gotcha. So we talked a little bit about the lateral design of the house. So you had, you know, kind of the upside down and right side up use on the side. What else did you use for lateral resistance? We use the... Um walls of the pool equipment room, which were below the pool, which is kind of at the prow of the ship. Okay. As simple as that sounds, they actually were also uh, sweeping curves. So they weren't just a regular, <laughs> um, just weren't, weren't just regular walls. And that allowed us to put in some beams that picked up some edge beams they were able to hide and so on and so forth. Concrete edge beams, or did you have to put steel in, in there? No, as well? concrete. All concrete. Okay. Anything that was exposed was concrete. Okay, 
So let's talk a little bit about the constructability of that then. Did you guys have to work pretty closely with the concrete subcontractor? Or, I mean, how was that getting that implemented? Because it's, I mean, it's one thing, it's so challenging to design, but then, you know, there's a whole other aspect of these sweeping curves in multiple directions and (laughs) multiple planes and getting that actually constructed. How did that all work out or... I think that the most significant thing is getting a good subcontractor. Mm-hmm. And we had an excellent uh, concrete sub that was able to get in there and actually do what we asked him to do. And there was a lot of back and forth between our company and the, and the uh, subcontractor, the concrete subcontractor. So, yes, it was a, a little bit of a challenge. There was a little bit of a design on the fly because – you know, we hadn't thought of all of the things that, you know, might have come up during the construction part of it. So we worked back and forth with the contractor and the sub to ensure that they got a product that they were happy with. Yeah, I would imagine it was probably all custom form work, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, it, that seemed, that detailing package seems very complicated. <laughs> yes, so crazy, but so awesome at the same time. Because right now, I mean, it's you're fully topped out, right? Like it's yes, yes, it's topped out. They're they're almost done with interior finishes, so uh, awesome. Should be ready to move in here soon, I think. That's so cool. So, were you out there on the first pour? Like, what what were your thoughts? Like the very first day when they were getting ready to start pouring something, pouring the concrete of something that has never been done before. Well, I mean, you're always a little anxious uh, uh, about that type of thing, but I knew the subcontractor very well, and so we were very pleased that they were uh, involved in the project. To them, it was just another concrete pour with a whole lot of complexity to it. (laughs) (laughs) It just took a little longer to form, probably. Yeah, a lot of forming. On those hues and upside down hues, what size rebar were you using for that? Because, I mean, you have to bend that somewhat, and I'm guessing it was fairly significant in size, right? We were actually do, able to do it with uh, number sixes mostly. Oh, okay. Some number sevens, you know, so less than an inch diameter bars. Uh, a lot of it was skin reinforcing and not bean type reinforcing. The ground floor arch came up right to the bottom of the first elevated floor. And then the upside down unit of that uh, was probably three feet above the floor. Okay. And so, you know, there was a lot of forming that had to stay in place until uh, we got to the point where we were able to get the upside down U, which then became part of a beam that supported the floor. So. Okay. So lots of complexities uh, and not an easy break location. <laughs> no, no. It's a, Poor break location. Probably wasn't convenient for the uh, subcontractor, but it was the only thing we could do to make it work. So. How many days did it take to pour that? Do you remember? Oh, shoot. It was, I mean, the pours, it, it probably took two weeks to get it formed. And, and the pour was one shot. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Now, one shot up to the first floor, you can only sure. go from floor to floor. Yep. There's, I mean, yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of concrete on it. So that's, that's pretty impressive. So what is something unexpected that came up during design or what's the most unexpected thing? Well, um, when we got to coordinating with the architect on the, uh, what was happening over the drive under area 
of the house, which is kind of between the main house and the pool. The pool was on the third floor. It was the second elevator. And they introduced these sweeping, uh, we thought we had a rectangular pool equipment room and we'd just run some beams off there and catch the beams that were going around the front. And we had it in our mind how it was going to be, but when it finally came down to it, that ground floor was a sweeping, kind of like an hourglass shape. Okay. So it was wide at the bottom, narrow in the middle, and wide at the top. And we wanted to get beams out to support these the edge beams, which were probably 36 inches deep or something like that, somewhere okay. in that range. And so there was a lot of uh, back and forth. Finally, they let us put two columns in this one location because when we tried to do what we originally were planning to do with uh, the information we thought was correct, we had significant deflection problems on the residential side of the pool. Okay. The deflection was, and this is a model deflection, um, the model deflection was way too much, like two inches or something. Okay. Those of uh, the listeners that, that aren't familiar with deflection, that's just downward movement. So from a theoretical standpoint, modeling it in the computer to see what would happen under actual loads. So you're saying you were getting two inches of downward movement right. in some locations. And so we kind of hemmed and hawed a lot and, and uh, a lot of gnashing of hands. And uh, we finally asked for uh, some columns uh, that were uh, between the, the pool and the, and the house, the entry. And uh, they gave us two, two columns to work with. Yes. And so that, and those columns were right out at those edge beams. And the edge beams then uh, were way more capable of uh, supporting the front end of the pool. And we took, that took care of all of the collection issues. So, And then uh, I think another thing, in between the time we started looking at this and the time we finished up, uh, we had several changes to both the roof and the the stair tower. Okay. Was there anything special that you had to do with the mix designs, like stronger concrete or, you know, maybe a, a mix that had higher slump? Were there special things that you had to do with the concrete to achieve this structure? The the arches that no, I would say, although we I think we required that they use three quarter inch aggregate in the arches. Floor slabs, as a rule, in Florida anyway, we require three-quarter inch in, in slabs because P-Rock mixes, which is the pumpable stuff that you're talking about, tend to uh, shrink and crack much easier here. Okay, so is it kind of a standard 4,000 PSI type of concrete then? Yes, yeah, we gotcha. use pretty much that. So that's pretty amazing, too, to be able to kind of use standard parameters and still achieve the complexity and uniqueness of this. Yeah, it was it was definitely a, a challenge. Yeah, crazy. OK, Richard, if you were to zoom out now, it's a little bit I mean, it's still maybe not fully in the rearview mirror, but if you were to kind of zoom out and look at the project as a whole, what would you say is the most fascinating thing of this job? I think the design. Uh, I'm, I'm just flabbergasted that. And I think this is partially due to the fact that the uh, guy that 
conceived of the idea wasn't necessarily a design professional. He wasn't a registered architect or a registered engineer. He was a designer. And mm-hmm. so he thought anything was possible. And we like to think anything's possible too. And so that's why we took it on. But uh, yeah, I think his uh, unique perspective on uh, what something like this would look like is what drove us to the point where we're at. Yeah, because so many times it's it's someone that's done something something similar and they're using similar concepts to develop something that's maybe a little bit unique. But yeah, to your point, it was someone that really was outside of the industry and came up with a more artistic, lofty idea. And the cool thing is, is that you guys with that technical knowledge were able to kind of reach up to that lofty look that they were going for. Yeah, it was cool. It, it, there's other things in this building that uh, I think were probably the result of some of his, although the design architect, the final design architect was also involved, but like up on the roof where the sunset deck is or the terrace or whatever you want to call it, the front end came down just like you would expect on a yacht. You know, it was a concrete slab that then angled down towards the front of the boat, if you will. Okay. That I think made for a unique appearance and a unique situation. Yeah, it probably draws the eye a little differently than it would if it was just flat out there, huh? Exactly. Very fascinating. So if you were to give this building a theme song, what would it be? (laughs) Magic. (laughs) Magic. Okay. I love that. Yes. Is is there a specific song, like the song Magic? There's a a song called Magic. I don't want to try to sing it for you. No, who sings it? I'm not saying you have to sing it, but who's who's the artist? Um, I'll have to look it up. I need to get that in my mind to see. But yes, I feel like that name for sure fits Uh, this building. (laughs) So what do you do to recharge? Um, I work a lot, (laughs) (laughs) Um, as I'm sure everybody does. Um, But I like to uh, spend time with my family. We've got grandkids now and love to spend time with them. And our own kids are spread out all over the country. Okay. Try to get to them whenever we can. That's awesome. So, okay, this is my last question, and it's an easy question. But are you left-handed or right-handed? I am right-handed. Okay. See, I have had, like, my theory is getting proven wrong because I've had a theory um, kind of my whole life. So I'm left-handed, which is where the question is coming from. Yeah. But I feel like in the engineering world and actually in the architectural world too, I feel like there's a higher percentage of people that are left-handed than in the general public. So I'm trying to prove that theory, but it is being proven as a myth. (laughs) I would say that among engineers, definitely right-handed. Among architects, definitely left-handed. And I'm actually kind of ambidextrous. So Okay, okay. Well, I'll take that as a 0.5 win for the left-handed side. Yeah, that's a win. Yeah, that's a win. Well, you know what? This building is so fascinating. And I mean, have you been able to see a sunset out on that rooftop deck yet? No, not yet. Uh, We were up there one day after one of the local AIA chapters had a function out there just to kind of go through. And uh, but it was cloudy, so couldn't see. Okay. 
Well, I feel like that is probably about the best spot, (laughs) maybe in the U.S. That may be overspeaking, but I feel like it's probably one of the top 10 spots to watch a sunset. I would expect that it is. It's, uh, I mean, the beaches there are just beautiful. This house sits within uh, feet of Lido Beach, south of Lido Beach, or north of Lido Beach, I guess. So it's uh, it's definitely one of the best sites. Yeah, and I think that beach has won many awards for being one of the most beautiful beaches in the U.S. too. So, well, I'm sure. I mean, hopefully someday I'll get invited to um, <laughs> maybe a, <laughs> something at that house. The chances are very slim, but I'm sure it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And yeah, you guys have to be super proud of yourselves to be working on that and to come up with something that works from a structural perspective. And this has been super fascinating. So Richard, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Well, if you get get down here, just let us know. We'll try to get you in. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) I might take you up on that. There you go. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Woo! Woo! Woo!
Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.